Thank you, Elastic Marine. And here we are in Kine, Kensington, also known as New Kensington, at the Alamo. And it's just me and the Elastic Marine in the troll booth. And here we are, Hebrews 2020. Keep plugging along by the grace of God. We see Jesus by the grace of God. Increment 158 by the God of all grace. And we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12 sometime along in this message. Holy Spirit, teach us. Deliver the truth into our innermost being. Deliver the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into our hearts. And thank you that without you, we have no illumination, no enlightenment, no enablement in this life. And we're grateful. And Father, we are grateful for the spirit of grace and for your Son, who, when beheld by witnesses, was said to be full of grace and truth. So we present ourselves to you for this message and to be taught of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Abraham and resurrection is pretty much the title, if we were to have one for today's message. Abraham and resurrection. I was going to call it the Abraham Files, but I've done that before. Abraham and resurrection. Resurrection, by my own admission, is a personal obsession of mine, so I always like to highlight it. Abraham is a significant figure in the scriptures for a number of reasons, which have often been noted, and for a few reasons, those are the ones I like to get to, that are not so often considered. He is the first of the three main patriarchs of Israel. So significant is Abraham to, to the God of Israel that when Moses encountered him at the burning thorn bush, please note I said thorn bush, the Greek word for that in the Greek text is ton batu, B-A-T-O-U, or tes batu, and it means not just burning bush, but a burning thorn bush. So when God encountered Moses at that pivotal moment at the burning thorn bush, God said to him, I am the God of your father. That is Moses' father, incidentally. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's Exodus 3.6. More than interesting, when Jesus spoke of the same incident while debating with some Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection. He related it to the resurrection of the dead. In Luke 20, 37, Jesus said, but even Moses made known that the dead are raised. Now, how do you see the dead are raised in God simply introducing himself to Moses as I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Again, in Luke 20, 37, during the debate, Jesus said, But even Moses made known that the dead are raised. 
For in the passage about the thorn bush, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Jesus went on to say this in Luke 20, 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God isn't the God of the dead called Thanatos. He's not the God of the dead called Hades. He's the God of the living called Yahweh. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, or this could even be translated before him or with him, all are living. Now this may be too intelligible for you and I. And it may be disruptive of our preconceptions about resurrection. But let's allow the Spirit to continually challenge us to wonder and to inquire. And let's never relinquish the gift of a pure desire to know. The word usually translated bush, once again, is more accurately thorn bush, T-E-S. It became famous, so it's called the thorn bush, and then B-A-T-O-U, batu, in Exodus 3.6. And of course, it evokes the memory of the crown of thorns worn by Jesus, the crucified Lord of glory. The self-naming of God as the God of your father, incidentally, was probably a reference to Moses' actual biological Hebrew father, who, according to Hebrews 11:23, by faith, along with his mother, hid Moses from Pharaoh's holocaust of the firstborn. That God then calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and I'm emphasizing Abraham here, is suggestive of the triunity of the one God. But even more, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive in his presence at the time, even though they had died, enclosed in quotes. The implication is astounding. They are already raised. The context of the debate, resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are proof that God is God of the living and proof of resurrection. They are already raised. And to God they are living. Now, how can Jesus say that they are already raised if we are expecting resurrection as a feature of future world? The answer, at least in part, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are already in future world and are of the spirits of justified people made perfect in Hebrews 12, 23 by resurrection, made perfect, made complete. And that's what, Revel that's what Hebrews is all about, regarding completion. They are made complete by resurrection. The same can be said of Moses and Elijah themselves on the Mount of Transfiguration, that mountain which Pastor Jeff Stewart taught about so effectively in a message at 
Tetelestai not too long ago. The mountain upon which Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about his, quote, exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke 9, 31. The exodus, of course, being not only his death, but his departure from this world into future world and also into heaven to complete his action as a great archpriest. Not spoken of by Luke, certainly by the author of Hebrews. In any case, Abraham was spoken of by Yahweh at the thorn bush. Notice that Yahweh is in a burning thorn bush. I don't know if what Moses saw was a picture or a depiction or a representation of Jesus with the crown of thorns in that thorn bush, but I wouldn't doubt it because that's Yahweh. And when Yahweh is fully manifested, it is when he's lifted up as the crucified Lord of glory. But when Abraham was spoken of by Yahweh at the thorn bush and by Jesus to his liberal opponents, that's what the Sadducees were, don't get me wrong, he had conservative ones too. In connection with resurrection, Abraham was spoken of by Yahweh at the thorn bush and by Jesus to his liberal opponents in connection with resurrection. Resurrection in their face, those who didn't believe in resurrection or in angels or spirits. Abraham's association to resurrection is also powerfully manifested in a passage that we just looked at. And I'm speaking of Romans 4, 16 to 25, which we will resort to again. And also to a passage we're about to examine, either in this or the next increment, in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Abraham's ultimate test was of his resurrection faith. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, though mentioned only once explicitly in Hebrews, I said explicitly, that's Hebrews 13, 20. The resurrection, however, is more important to the homily than meets the eye. For example, the resurrection of Jesus is powerfully typified in Isaac's figurative resurrection from the dead. Abraham's faith in God's faithfulness and omnipotence extended to God's ability to bring into existence things that do not exist and to raise the dead. Romans 4.17. Romans 4.17. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is also presupposed. It's a presupposed reality by his exaltation to the right hand of the majestic glory of God the Father, and it's presupposed for his salvific intercessory ministry in the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews 7.16, Hebrews 9.24, Hebrews 7.25 also. In fact, Jesus' intercession for us is coupled with his resurrection from the dead in Romans 8.34. Very closely, Christ, the one who died, even more who was raised up, 
who is at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf. Christ who died is the one who was raised up, and we know from Romans 4.25 that he was raised up because of our justification, which came about through his faithful death for us and not through our personal faith. So when the exordium of Hebrews, that is the first four verses, that complex sentence, the exordium of Hebrews speaks of the Son who has made purification for sins and who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. We who believe know that between, quote, making purification for sins, close quote, and, quote, sitting down in the heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, close quote, that in between those two events, Jesus was raised from the dead. Sometimes the omission of a momentous truth is powerful, is a powerful and creative reminder of it. We say something may be conspicuous by its absence. Here's a principle, though, and even a thesis. If you were doing a book on Hebrews sometime, you could say, for one of the theses that makes up that study, future world is what it is because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, a curious thing happened while I was preparing this, and each message goes through quite a rigorous testing on my part in my cave, which I call my study. And in preparing for this increment for Hebrews, I always, most of all, what I want to do when I'm studying is be available to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And while I was preparing this increment for Hebrews, I was caused to remember very sharply a paragraph in the systematic theology of Wolfhart Pannenberg. Concluding a section on the eschatological topic the kingdom of God as the fulfillment of human society. He wrote this, and I'm going to quote, and I don't like to do this too often, but when a paragraph to me comes across as either exquisite or sublime in our purposes, and it's brought to my attention so that everything else is swept out of my mind but it, then I want to quote it. And so this is, again, from Wolfhart Pannenberg, in his Systematic Theology, Volume 3 on Eschatology, and it's a section of that called The Kingdom of God as the Fulfillment of Human Society. And this is what he wrote. Quote, Without all the members of the race participating in the fulfillment of its destiny, as this is expressed in Christian eschatology, by the linking of the consummation of the kingdom of God to the resurrection of the dead, there would be no reconciliation of the individual and society in the concept of a fulfillment of human destiny. For this reason, every eschatology of society that links the, or that thinks only in this worldly terms, notice that, every eschatology that thinks only in this worldly terms falls short of the concept of a fulfillment of human destiny. Even if we ignore the question 
of whether a state of eternal peace, such as Kant, that's Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, had before him as the goal of history, or Marx, of course Karl Marx, in the form of a classless society, envisioned as the goal and standard of political action, is really attainable at all. In any case, only the individuals who live in the relevant generation could have a share in it. In comparison with the conjoining of the resurrection of the dead and the kingdom of God in Christian eschatological expectation, the this-worldly utopias of a form of social fulfillment that will be achieved by human action can count as only very imperfect expressions of the hope of a future consummation of humanity. The consequences of the related functionalizing of individuals have also come into light, especially in the case of Marxism in the ruthless sacrificing of the happiness of those that are alive now in the name of the supposed goal of humanity. It's time Marxism was challenged with the in-your-face Christian eschatology of resurrection. Recently, a highly admired member of the so-called squad called Jesus a con man. Now that gets my hackles up, and it makes me want to get in her face and demonstrate the reality of Jesus Christ. Reminds me of a time in college when a philosophy professor was talking about the unreality, literally the unreality of Jesus Christ. And when I went up to him, he said, hey, you can do papers on Mao Zedong. You can do papers on this philosopher, that philosopher, Lao Tzu, and a bunch of other people, and, or anyone you want. So at the end of the class, I went up to him and I said, I would like to do my paper and entitle it The Reality of Jesus Christ. He had a little bit of a look of surprise on his face, but he was a little too stoned to react very actively because, of course, Everybody needs to be pacified today so that we're ripe for conquest. He was smoking something that seemed to pacify him, so he wasn't very moved by my citation of my title. I never did get to do that, incidentally, because I left college under some unusual circumstances and then went back to finish three years later. But... It just reminds me of that. Future world, now I'm not quoting Wolfhart Pannenberg, and I know what I just quoted is a mouthful, and it's quoted, it's also translated from the German, so there's a lot to it, but maybe I can make some sense of it now. Future world rests on the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and so does the destiny of human society. When you omit that, as Marx did in his venomous vision, of a classless society that's already cost hundreds of millions of people their happiness, their lives, their property, and their families. Jesus, raised from the dead by an act of God, is the goal of humanity, the real goal of humanity, and the fulfillment of human destiny. 
The Hebrews homily allows us to see the risen Jesus as the fulfillment of human destiny. Do you understand that? That's one of the major features of our study so far and why it's so relevant and pertinent to our own time. This Hebrews homily allows us to see the risen Jesus, we see Jesus, as the fulfillment of human destiny, and it allows us to expect the participation of the whole human race in that destiny. If only the political activists and social idealists of our time would seriously reflect on the horrors caused by the implementation of the venomous, venomous Marxist vision, and I could also call Darwin's vision venomous, and Freud's ideas largely venomous, if only the political activists and social idealists of our time, who are wielding such power momentarily, would seriously reflect on the horrors caused by the implementation of the venomous Marxist vision and by stark eternal contrast the glories and wonders of the revelation afforded by Christian eschatology. No this worldly vision of a utopian human society brought about by human action can ever be realized and all attempts to bring this utopia into being by legislative action or a redistribution, a forced redistribution, is destined to fail miserably and catastrophically. As students of history already know, and as a bewitched generation of idealists will yet inevitably discover. The bleeding edge of scholarship today presents a potent challenge to the widely adulated theories of such men as Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and even Albert Einstein. Well, all of this has arisen from our reflection on Abraham and the intimate connection of his exemplary faith and patience with resurrection. It seems that we can't avoid social commentary, that is, we pastors. We can't really avoid it entirely. We can't avoid making social comment, at least from time to time, especially when the very truths that would pull us up and out of the political and social quagmire we are in today are being rejected, demonized, and mocked, while political leaders who know better and seem to be following the lead of idiots in a catatonic state. Leaders who know better, or maybe who don't know better, are dancing to the tune of naive, bug-eyed idealists whose Marxist utopian ideology is both unrealistic and destructive, and let me use this phrase again, in the final analysis, both vicious and murderous. It's almost impossible not to speak against such dangerous ideologies when one is assured that the only vision 
For the reconciliation of all people and all things has been achieved in the death of Jesus Christ and by the blood of his cross. And that the only real and true vision for the peaceful and even joyous consummation of human society in which all become vital participants is by the resurrection of the dead, which is linked inextricably and forever to the resurrection of Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. Once crowned with a crown of thorns. Moreover, renaissances in history or rebirths and great recoveries in history occur through the holding of the hope we're talking about, this hope by grace and its communication by those who are fully convinced of it. The God of hope and of all grace can certainly say even of our own sick nation, and our nation right now is very sick. The God of hope and grace can certainly say, however, of our own sick nation or to whatever nation in which you live. I'm not trying to be provincial here and just American only because I know that our audience may include others. God can even say for your own nation, as he did for Jerusalem, quote, yet I will certainly bring health and healing to it and will indeed heal them. I will let them experience the fragrance of peace and truth. Jeremiah 33, 6. Abraham's significance, that's what we let off with. I'm still on it, even though we fanned out a bit. Abraham's significance is also due to his association with Levi, and the Levitical priesthood, and, with, and also with Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 17 to 20. Melchizedek, the king and priest of God Most High, who serves as a fruitful type of our great archpriest Jesus in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, passage we're not too far away from considering. For our immediate present purposes, Abraham is a model of faith and patience, and presents to us a pattern worthy of imitation. This is illustrated not only in Romans 4, 16 to 23, which we'll look at, which we just glanced at, and we'll look at it again, but also in Hebrews 6, 12 to 15, and Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, and 17 through 19, which we're also going to take a glance at. Abraham is associated most intimately with the promise of God that in his seed all the nations will be blessed. Therefore, Abraham is associated with the promise of universal salvation and even of cosmic redemption in Romans 4.13 because the promised Abraham and his seed was that he would inherit the cosmos that's the universe or future world. And that he would inherit it not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That means Messiah's own fidelity. The faith of which Jesus is the author and perfecter in Hebrews 12.1. So Hebrews 6.12 begins with the purpose clause, Hina me nothroi genesta. 
and you'll see this in print, which means so that you will not be, and please notice I've inserted this phrase to give the sense, which is what I'm supposed to do, according to Nehemiah 8.8, which we cite so often. So that you will not be, or we could say, so that in the final analysis, you will not have become lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit. Now, inheritance has to do with experience. Experience the benefit of the promises. This seems to express the practical goal of the PT in writing this homily. Whatever the state of the recipients of Hebrews, and at whatever time they live, all of us who have been awakened to faith and gifted with faith in Jesus Christ and to the hope that's engendered by the gospel, all of us are urged to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises or experience the fulfillment of them or if not the fulfillment of them, definitely experience the assurance of their fulfillment. Sometimes assurance is its own reward. Abraham is an outstanding example. If you don't believe that assurance is its own reward, look around you and see if people are assured of anything at all. The less we're assured about our future, the more confused we are in the present, the more erratic, the more agitated, the more anxious. So sometimes assurance is its own reward. Abraham is an outstanding exemplar of this faith joined with patience. Other examples of it are given in the chapter on the great cloud of witnesses, which is Hebrews chapter 11, of course, famously. But the ultimate exemplar is Jesus himself who outshines all in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. The only way to be an imitator of Jesus is to be a participant in his faithfulness and patience. Faith and patience are the focus here in Hebrews 6.12 because the faith that is encouraged is had and held through paradoxes of experience. That is, while having to put up with adversity, delays, and apparent contradictions. Now, imitation does not mean mimicry or impersonation. It means to follow a pattern that is evident in a known person or personage. I've seen people that imitate the characteristics of the preachers they grew up under, even to the point of putting their hand on the hip like he did or doing something like he did or saying something like he said or having the same inflections. And sometimes you can't help that a little bit as we imitate our mentors. But eventually we shed those idiosyncrasies and eccentricities and particular characteristics of our mentors and become our own persons. So imitation doesn't mean mimicry or impersonation. It means to follow a pattern, however, that is evident in a known person or personage of faith and patience in this case. Paul presented himself boldly and others as worthy of imitation. In Philippians 3.17, he wrote, quote, Brothers, join in imitating me and observe those who conduct their lives according to the pattern you have in, uh, in me. 
So to imitate in the sense that we're speaking of here in Hebrews 6.12 is to conduct our lives according to a pattern that is apparent in someone else's life and livingness. Paul had outlined the pattern of his life and livingness in Philippians 3, 4 to 14. Well worth reviewing and reading often. It's a pattern worthy of imitation. Imitation, again, isn't pantomiming someone's personality traits, individual idiosyncrasies, or eccentricities. It isn't promoting or parroting their political opinions. But if the pattern of, in fact, I have certain theologians that I admire greatly whose politics I find abysmally ignorant. And some of them are socialists and some of them are ultra conservatives and some, but I don't, I've had to shed any imitation of their political beliefs because I have my own political convictions that I try not to let come through the pulpit, but sometimes you have to, especially if you're facing certain opponents of Jesus Christ who happen to be, in our time, Marxist socialists or utopian socialists and who are not drinking the Kool-Aid, as is often said. They're drinking the stuff that just is marked poison, and they're drinking it anyway. So, if the pattern of someone's life has been approved and commended in the scriptures, it's worthy of imitation. When God approves, then you can be sure that someone's pattern of living and being is worthy of imitation. So, what God approves is faith, quite simply, in Hebrews 11.2, Hebrews 13.7. And without faith, no one can please God, in Hebrews 11.6. What is worthy of imitation, then, are, or who is worthy of imitation, are certain witnesses who thought and acted by faith, the assurance of things hoped for. Because those things were promised by God, who is unreservedly reliable and all-powerful. To operate in faith in God's promises is to be reasonable because God is able to fulfill those promises, however unreasonable they seem to the natural mind. Hebrews 10.23 and 11.11 are good examples of people who simply reckoned that God was capable of doing what he promised. Again, in Philippians 4.9, Paul wrote this, Do what you've learned and received and observed in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul knew and strongly vocalized that he was what he was by the grace of God and by no achievements of his own in 1 Corinthians 15, 10a. In fact, he regarded all those achievements as so much excrement. So he knew that he was what he was by the grace of God. So it was only what he was by the grace of God that was worthy of imitation. So by that same grace, he knew that he had been made a pattern worthy of imitation by the saints in all generations of the present age and through the present current conflict of the ages. In 2 Thessalonians 3.7, in fact, he urged the saints at Thessalonica to imitate him and the other members of his team, his missionary team, as they were not idle or lazy while they were among them. We weren't idle or lazy. 
And some of the Thessalonians became idle and lazy. Maybe their government paid them more money not to work than their employers would pay them to work. But either way, they became lazy and idle. Some of them became lazy and idle because they expected the rapture to happen any minute. And so why work? Why do anything purposeful? What an idiotic way to live. But Paul said, look, be imitators of us. While we were with you, we were not idle. They worked. Paul worked as a tent maker. They worked menial jobs. They worked, they did all that they could do. And they worked very hard to study and proclaim the gospel of Christ. So again, that's 2 Thessalonians 3.7, 2 Thessalonians 3.9. And so, in fact, in Hebrews 13.7, the verb mimeomai, which is the verbal form of mimesis is is deployed where the writer urges his readers to quote imitate the faith that really grabs it that captures it imitate the faith imitate the faith if there's anything i would say imitate me and if i was to say to preachers coming up imitate me it would not be anything about me except my faith i'm sure and assured of human society's consummation in Jesus Christ. Imitate my assurance. Imitate my full and plenary hope. Imitate my expectation. Imitate my faith. Do that all day long. But I don't say follow me around and imitate everything I do. I might even say a naughty word at a car that crosses my path illegally. So, In Hebrews 13, 7, the verb mimeomai is deployed where the writer urges his readers to imitate the faith of those who communicated God's word to them and to consider the outcome of their way of being and living. It is assumed that their leaders, and incidentally, Psalm 37, 37 comes into mind, take note of the mature believer for he has a posterity. There is a wonderful outcome for the man of peace, the woman of peace. So consider the outcome of people of faith. And consider that the outcome is ultimately approval by God spoken publicly before the angels and all of creation. And all of humanity and all of history. Presidents and kings, dictators and corporate leaders and heads of corporations just may have to hear your name as God commends you for your faith. So it's assumed that their leaders, those who spoke the word of Christ to them, were full of faith. They spoke because they believed in 2 Corinthians 4.13. What's the number one requirement for the preacher? He has to say with the spirit of faith, we believed, therefore we spoke. I, am, I can't even believe. I'm appalled. I've heard of people whose pastors have admitted privately that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, though they have to preach it because it's their job. What the hell? I can't even 
I, I, I don't want to go there because I'll say more words on top of what the hell. But it's assumed that the, right, the, reader, the leaders that are speaking the word of God to them were full of faith. They spoke because they believed, and the message they proclaimed came forth according to 1 Thessalonians again. Thessalonians gets a lot of press lately. 1.5, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. Remember that word, pleroforia. That's a big word. He uses big words. We want simple words. We want keep it simple, stupid. Okay, you want keep it simple, stupid? Then remain stupid forever, you simpleton. Bible doctrine demands maturing. Maturing demands complex doctrines. The whole world has a complexity in all the areas of expertise. Why not the Bible? Why not theology? For some reason, theology has to be kept simple, stupid, so that people can remain stupid. Not so here. And there may be a smaller audience because of that, but I really don't care. Hebrews 6.12, here's the verse. My sense, giving the sense, so that in the final analysis, you will not be lazy. Oh, Northroy, or Nothroy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience come into possession or become fully assured of the promises. Now, the final analysis is in the final day of evaluation. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul said, we labor to be approved of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're either going to hear agathos or phaulos at the judgment seat. We're, if we're lazy and idle, then we're not going to hear well done. In the final analysis. So I've given the sense here of so that in the final analysis you will not be lazy. Because this verse forms an inclusio with Hebrews 5.11. Where the teaching pastor tells his readers or his audience that they have in fact become lazy. The implication is that the implied recipients of this homily may not at the time have had what it takes to persevere to the point that their faith would be approved and commended like Abraham's, for example, was. He wants that to change. So that in the final analysis, they will not have become lazy. He will not have them be like the evil and lazy slave. That's Jesus' words in a parable. A parable, he puts the words in the mouth of a character of a parable. He will not have them be like the evil and lazy slave who is controlled by fear and hid his master's talent in a hole in the earth rather than investing it and who consequently suffered loss at his master's return. Matthew 25, 25 to 26. This does not indicate the words of Jesus Christ, the master when, and the Lord, when we are finally giving an account to him, which we will do. He's not that way. He doesn't call you an evil and lazy slave and doesn't slay you in front of him. He's using that as a parable to show really what he's not like. But it also is a warning against becoming slothful and lazy where it really counts. Maybe you're a workaholic and you work around the clock and get busy around the clock and putter around the house doing things all day long and 
fulfill all kinds of schedules because everybody needs you somewhere and everybody has to have a piece of you and you're really busy, busy and such a hard worker, but you're a lazy bum when it comes to doing the things that are the most important and that's to continue in the word, to continue in faith, to continue in grace. Word, John 8, 31. Faith, Acts 14, 22. Grace, Acts 13, 43. My son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2, 1. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the ages to come. In 2 Peter 3, 18. Don't be lazy where it counts the most to be diligent. Now, I'm ready to close. There's a couple of pairings of words that go together in this heavenly homily called Hebrews. In Hebrews 6.13, we're pushing on, believe it or not. Here, let me t say something to people who are listening. There's a few of you that might say, man, he's going so slow, he'll never get through. My answer to that is, so what? So what if we never get through? What if I die doing Hebrews? What if you die listening to Hebrews? What if we never get through Hebrews? Well, then, if we did get through Hebrews, we'd be on another book that if I died doing it, I wouldn't get through it. And so I'm very convinced, and I think by the Holy Spirit himself, that we can take our time going through Hebrews. And if there's something that we need to develop thoroughly and more often and more thoroughly than people would really want to happen, we're going to develop it more thoroughly. If I drop dead in Hebrews 7, so what? If we go on to a thousand tapes or a thousand increments of Hebrews, so what? It's Hebrews. It's a heavenly homily. Okay. Now, I'm not just doing this because I need to vent. I'm doing this because you need somebody to yell at you who loves you. All right. So there's a couple of pairings of words that go together in this heavenly homily. What's Hebrews? A heavenly homily. In Hebrews 6.13, there's faith and patience. That's the duo. In Hebrews 10.35 to 36, there's confidence and perseverance. That's the duo. Whether it's through faith and patience or through perseverance added to confidence, the result is reward. Now, what's the difference? There's faith and patience, and there's confidence and perseverance. What's the difference between patience, which happens to be the Greek word macrothumia, and perseverance, which happens to be the word hupomone? What's the difference between patience and perseverance? Hebrews 6.13, macrothumia. Hebrews 10.36, hupamone, perseverance. What's the difference? Well, hupamone is perseverance in mission focus while under pressure and with potential distractions going on, on around you. And while you're in... Yes, spiritual conflict. 
It's a divinely inspired and empowered human action. Yes, it is. Hupomone is a human action, but it's divinely inspired and empowered human action. Macrothumia, on the other hand, is a divinely produced disposition and a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. As perseverance, hupomone is the transplanted endurance of Jesus into the saint. So patience is the transposition of divine long-suffering in the saint. It's the ability to wait for the fulfillment of a divine promise for a long time if it's necessary. A lot of the faith heroes died waiting for the promise all their life and it wasn't fulfilled, but they died waiting and they're rewarded for that. Hupamone, once again, translated, I think, either for as perseverance or endurance, is joined to confidence, which is parousia, another key word in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 35, and 36. Don't throw away your confidence, parousia, because you have need of perseverance, hupomone. Macrothumia is joined to faith, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, in Hebrews 6, 12. Both word duos are related to receiving something promised. Now listen very carefully because a lot of you are interested in the concept of reward. Some of you don't even like the, the idea of a universal salvation because you don't want everybody to be saved. You want to be special and be saved while others go to hell. Some of you, however, are a little bit upset because you do believe that everyone's going to be saved. But does that mean I can still have rewards that are better than other people's? <laughs> well, yeah. There is that, but being humble about it is all the more important. So both word duos are related to receiving something promised and to some great reward. Don't throw away your confidence because why? Because it has a great reward. And you need perseverance. So let me tell you this. This is something that I think is very important, and I'll put it in bold print in the printed version of this message. Perhaps your reward, I'm looking at you, perhaps your reward coming as a result of faith and patience consists of something that has not yet come into existence. Something that God will bring into existence just for you in future worlds. What's my reward, Lord? I'm just curious. I don't need it. I'm glad to just be here. Well, what is that reward you talked about? And the Lord will say, it hasn't been created yet. Here it is. Boom. And he creates it like a universe. So to Abraham, the reward was the promised seed of which Isaac was the nascent fulfillment, N-A-S-C-E-N-T, fulfillment. And we're going to get into that in our next increment. To us, the reward is the extraordinary bonus of special proximity and nearness to Jesus Christ, a reward that defies the grandest expectations of our imagination. So while we hope, what we hope for happens to be unseen right now and even unimagined as long as we're in this evil age and half blinded by the fog of spiritual war. We got to go through this whole life, you know, half blinded by the fog of spiritual warfare. Oh, you didn't know we were in a spiritual warfare? Well, better wake up and put on the full armor from God because, baby, you are.
But we walk by faith and not by sight, says 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Our reward is not seen, though we have respect for it, even though it's unimaginable, just like Moses did when he endured reproach with the people of God rather than experience the passing, fleeting pleasures, however great they were in Egypt in Hebrews 11, 25, and 26. It says Moses endured as one who saw the invisible. You know what that means? He saw Jesus. We also endure seeing him who is invisible to the eyes in our head. We endure as we see Yahweh in Jesus. We see Jesus as Yahweh, and we endure until the moment when every eye sees him. 1 John 3, 2, Revelation 1, 7, in connection with Zechariah 12, 10, and Daniel 7, 13 to 14. When every knee willingly genuflects to him, and every tongue with uncontainable praise worships him and acknowledges Yahweh, to be Jesus to the glory of God the Father in Romans 14, 11 and Philippians 2, 10 to 11. And here's something you ought to know about that. The absolute certainty of this occurring is underscored by God's oath. The next subject is going to be the oath-fortified promise. And that's coming up, and it's coming up in the next increment. In Isaiah 45, 23, God said, I swear that every knee will bow to me and every tongue acknowledge me worshipfully. A promise underscored, underlined, emphasized by a divine oath. So in closing, we gaze, says the scripture, into the mirror of the word to see the image of Yahweh, the invisible God made visible in Jesus in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And because we have this ministry, what ministry? This ministry of beholding him. That's what it's all about in Hebrews. We see Jesus. It's a ministry. What's your ministry? My ministry is beholding him as in a glass, in the word. We who have this ministry of beholding him, and we who have received mercy, we don't faint, we don't quit, we don't cave in and give up hope. 2 Corinthians 4.1. Connect those two, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 4.1. We don't surrender our great expectation for a bowl of stew like Esau and, and his temporary failure of the God's grace. We don't substitute the holding of our hope for future world for a bunch of sloppy pleasures through sexual immorality in this age. Like a fornicator, as Hebrews 12, 15 to 17 says. We don't fail the grace of God by surrendering its good hope. Like Esau surrendered his birthright. By hope, we confidently hope in life's difficulties. By hope, we cope in life's difficulties. We cope, and then we conquer. Just as the faith heroes of the past who, quote, became strong after being weak, in Hebrews eleven thirty four, and who conquered kingdoms. First they coped, then they conquered, Hebrews eleven thirty three. We are all stars of the cosmos. John Lennon sang it once, 
Who do you think you are? A superstar? Well, right, you are. Well, the Bible says it even better. We are all stars of the cosmos. Abraham's seed, his innumerable seed in Genesis 15, 5. But we also ought to know that star differs from star in magnitude. That's what the resurrection of the dead is like, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 41 to 42. Those of faith and patience, of confidence and perseverance, will shine on with a greater multitude, a greater capacity to glorify God in future world. You'll be glad, and I'll say this is the last thing today, you'll be glad you continued in the hope of the gospel without being moved from it. I can tell you that with plenary assurance. For now, the assurance of things hoped for is its own reward. Thanks, Father, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.